0: All right.
1: All right. We're here. Wait, no. <laughs> I, like how, I no. like how
0: we do. I like, I like how we do. All right. We're here now. And then when the guest joins, we do it all over again. It's like, it's it's a good,
1: <laughs> no, it's, I'm gonna it's a good. Here we are. The data protection. <laughs> I, I can't steal my man's line. Uh, shout out to uh another food review page. That's his line. All right. We're here is his line. I don't want to take his line.
0: Another food
1: review. Best Instagram are. account on earth. Yes, the data protection. Breakfast hey Andy, so uh,
0: like I, I gotta tell you, I like Chicago the band. I like the music, but I didn't think I could find a button-down shirt of the level of prestige that that trumpet player is wearing at this time. Like, <laughs> we gotta get our hands on whatever that thing is. <laughs> that is a magnificent piece of wardrobe.
1: These guys. I need to incorporate into my rotation. Chicago is so underrated. Or, or maybe yeah, they're yeah, rated yeah. perfectly. I don't know. Maybe they're rated perfectly. Uh, they are quintessential cheesy 80s rock band. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: So good. This, yeah, song, yeah, yeah. this song sears itself into your brain and doesn't leave for weeks on end. So I hope everyone <laughs> look away. Uh, Power Ballad, a really weird video with a flaming car uh, and a lady tossing a cigarette and a man Singing high pitched, it's crazy and a great video, and (laughs) we liked it because it's like AdTech has this. uh, We'll talk about it later, but AdTech has a look away feel to it uh, (laughs) on occasion. But I think like you tee up Derek because he's he's definitely your friend. Derek is
0: my homeboy, man. We 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 met at Oracle. We both worked there together. Uh, We're veterans of the uh, you know Oracle Data Cloud wars of the last five years and all the acquisitions that happened really quickly. You know, he's kind of non-traditional man. Like he joined, I think he was, no, he was, he was a partner at a law firm, um, did some litigation stuff and he's a tremendous orator and speaker. So I can see how he was a super awesome litigator. But,
1: yeah. you know,
0: he did that for a long time, man, like 15, 20 years. And, uh, and then decided he wanted to try, uh, you know, his wits at, at, uh, at in-house. And, you know, I saw a lot of people come and go while I was at Oracle. Like Derek was one of the easiest transitions and he had no like point of reference for ad tech. Now he's an ad tech GC. Just think about what I just said. Ad tech wasn't part of his brain, you know, when he joined Oracle and four years later or whatever it is, he's five, I guess four or five years later, he's the GC of an ad tech company. Like this is Derek Zollner in
1: a nutshell. It's mind blur to be honest because the technology is yeah. so complicated and uh yeah uh I, what oracle was doing is especially difficult because they bought five six companies in a in a three-year span and put them all together to create a service offering uh that takes some time but like you have to think strategically about how those all fit together because all of a sudden yep. you're selling them all you know, and all of a sudden, you're the lawyer yeah. repping repping the contracts for all of those, and so that's that's just exceedingly difficult and uh, and uh, very impressive, very impressive. Yeah, he's a
0: he, he's a beast, and um, like you know, I was the, kind of the first ad techie lawyer at Oracle. You know, there came not that long after, um, and uh, you know, like I said, I mean, I think people looked at me as I like, kind of like this source of information and knowledge about the ins and outs of ad tech. I mean, half the time back then we were making it up as we went along trying to figure out what yes was and what no was and what right is and what right isn't. But um, you know, one thing I'll say about Derek and, and, and I'm glad he's not here to hear this cause I don't want him to get too cocky. But in addition to the fact that he's sharp and was a fast learner, he was a tremendous voice of reason, right? Like he would always be like, Man, we've just spun up all this stuff for this one thing that you, me, you and your team are super focused on. But, like, you know, where's the actual risk of associated with this? Like, where's the harm? Where's the damage? What's the problem that this is creating that makes it such a priority? And he really helped a lot of the time in just kind of rebalancing priority. And reorienting uh, energy to the places where you could have the most impact, and he has an instinct for this uh, that was that's just inc- art- that is incredible.
1: That's clearly him. That's also litigator in action, right? That's like let me narrow this down to what is causing, what are the key issues, and what are the what are the actual issues causing harm or damage, and that's something that like that uh, is so that like that point alone is what makes what if you're going to argue that a litigator makes an effective in-house lawyer that's got to be the number one driver. he's the case yeah he's they've like, he's okay. the case they know, to, they know how to drive that to that point
0: yeah derek is the prototype and i think honestly kind of rare um example of litigator transitioning and translating all of their skill sets super effectively to more corporate, you know, in-house legal manager. He's, he's one of the best I've ever seen.
1: Love it. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it, man.
0: And let's buy this shirt. I need it.
1: (laughs) All right. Oh man. All right. Here we are. The Data Protection Breakfast Club with our friend Derek Zollner from Centro and Pedro with a Gators hat on. Uh, is that camo that's right
0: university
1: yeah man I'm from, i live in georgia
0: man so i gotta kind of be a little low-key gator fan but
1: uh, uh before we start with where, there who's your favorite gator like uh athlete mine yeah is, this is obvious tim tebow that's <laughs> obvious oh this is obvious, so here, here's
0: the story um I was at the University of Florida from 2000, what was it, five? Late 2005 to 2008. During those couple of years, Tim Tebow and his greatness brought us two football national championships and the basketball team led by Joe Kim Noah, Corey Brewer, um, Al Horford, and those guys brought us two basketball championships while I was on campus. It was an amazing time to be at the University of Florida. So um, yeah, Tim Tebow's awesome. I have a Tim Tebow story, uh, but it's kind of long, but I can give you the abbreviated version. What is it? I uh, The football practice facility is right next to the law school. And one night I was walking my dog, uh, and this is before Tim Tebow was super famous uh, outside of the state of Florida. He was always a famous quarterback he's from jacksonville so people knew who he was in florida but um i was walking my my dog mango and i ran into a young guy uh on the walk and turned out it was tim tebow and so you know chatted him up for a second wished him luck during the football season whatever fast forward a couple years he's now won like the heisman trophy he's like you know he gave the speech he's like the most famous athlete in the country at the time maybe and um uh, I walk into the Outback Steakhouse, I think it was an Outback Steakhouse, maybe it was another restaurant, I think it was an Outback Steakhouse in Gainesville, it's a long time ago, a lot of tequila, but I walk into a restaurant in Gainesville, and I'm sitting at the bar, and Tim Tebow walks into the restaurant, and is working his way like towards like, a more private area towards the back, and um, uh, a couple minutes later, he walks back out, he looks me straight in my eye, and my dog's name is Mango, and he's like, how's Mango? This is the most famous person. This is like a godlike figure in Gainesville. Uh, you know, he's uh, obviously a really famous athlete in the country, and he dude, he remembered my dog. I thought that was super dope. So shout out to Tim Tebow. He probably has no idea what I'm talking about, but um, he's definitely. If you ever, and if you ever watch this podcast, he's a subscriber. But, he's a
2: subscriber, right? He's definitely. Yeah, I don't think Tim Tebow yeah. watches the privacy. One of those. Well. One of those national championships was at the expense of my Sooners. Uh, I believe that is correct. It is, it is correct. When I was there, I uh, right before I started at OU, I'm a little bit older than you, but when I, right before, in the heyday of the late 80s, OU had like the number one basketball team and the number one football team at the same time, same kind of setup. During the seven years I was there, they were terrible at both of them. Then as soon as I left, <laughs> two years later, they won a national championship again. So like, I had the worst stretch of of OU sooner than oh, during my actual time there. Well, wow. dude, I got to tell you like m-
0: my stretch at the University of Florida was like magical. Like it was just magic. And shout out to Chris Leak by the way, who was the quarterback for the first the starting quarterback for the first national championship. Tim tebow was his backup, but um yeah, it was like the opposite experience, man. It was just an amazing time to be in Gainesville. So. Chris Leak also a
2: subscriber, right? Definitely
1: subscriber. Your your college uh, athletics programs have nothing on Colgate University. <laughs> <laughs> so our hockey team could beat the Florida Gators hockey team left and, left. <laughs> no. and really good, uh, really good uh, swimming program too. There. What's his name? Who used to be the Oklahoma coach who went on to coach the Dallas
0: Cowboys? What's this guy's name?
2: Switzer. Oh, Barry Switzer. Yeah, Barry. Old, Barry. Barry Switzer. Everybody <laughs> in old, Norman, Oklahoma has a, has a Barry Switzer story because he used to have a, a booth at this Italian restaurant called Othello's, always in there holding court with a bunch of young co-eds. And uh, he's just a campus legend. If you drank on campus, which if you were a college student, you did, you ran into Barry at some
1: point. And then, and awesome. then he tried, I tried to take a bunch of guns through security at an airport. Like, it was crazy. <laughs> For safety. Yeah. yeah. I guess so. <laughs> well, Personal all protection. Right. So, all right. So, Derek, so oh, no. you started at OU, but what happened after OU? You decided, I'm going to go be an ad tech lawyer right away, right? No, yeah, no. <laughs> uh...
2: Well, so, you know, this, you, is, this is, I get it. This is sort of an 80s themed uh, podcast. And so my whole impression, you'll get this reference, was of lawyers was L.A. law. Love. I thought that I thought that's what people did as lawyers, and so that life seemed super sexy to me, and uh, I, like, I, I knew no lawyers growing up. I, I, barely anybody in my family had gone to college. I had two uncles that went to college, and uh, so I decided I was going to go to law school. I was, uh, I was in my last semester of, of undergrad, and I was wondering what the hell I was going to do. I had a great house on campus, Right next to the football stadium. I loved being a college nice. student. So I was like, I'm just going to continue. I'm going to keep this rolling. I was like, what can I do with a poli sci degree? Law school, it is. Went to law school, and uh, it turned out yeah, like it was it fit it fit my skill set, we'll call it. And uh, then I worked for a year in Kansas City. You know, there are no good law jobs in Oklahoma. They're like two big firms, big <laughs> firm. and so everybody either goes south to Dallas or north to Kansas City. So I went to Kansas City and I worked at a firm where I did uh, tobacco work, tobacco defense work for one, not even one year, about nine months. Then tobacco my, defense, now that's, that's, that's the cutting edge stuff. It actually, you know, it was one time I was sitting at my desk or one time I came in one morning on sitting on my desk was a complaint that I had heard a story about on NPR on the way into work. It was, it was a class action around menthol cigarettes that was sort of the new wave they were going to new attack that the plaintiff's attorneys were going to take so it was like yeah like it was the stuff in the news i was seeing but you know i was so low level i was just reviewing docs and answering complaints and whatever else and then uh my girlfriend at the time then now wife um against my better advice decided to go to law school too and she went to Northwestern, and so I followed her up here and uh, then worked at a, as a litigator at a firm called Vetter Price up here for 15, 15 almost 16 years, and then, and then realized that all of that. Oh, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, did you work with Mark Parton, who's now the CPO at Oracle? Because he was there, right?
2: Mark and I worked together. Yeah, we worked together. Hold on a second.
0: You know, it's interesting, while Derek goes and handles the thing, um, the better lawyer in that household is definitely not Derek. Um, His wife is a super, super top lawyer um, and humble. I actually got to meet her one trip in Chicago. She's amazing. I was just talking about what a great lawyer your wife is,
2: Derek. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. So, you know, my Zoom setup is absolutely terrible. Andy, I think you have kids, right? You fight for space. I've got four kids. And so I had to kick somebody out of this place to get it because this is the best place. But there's also a printer in here that they all have access to and so it can just randomly print stuff. So <laughs> for the printer going for the for a crossword puzzle or something. I don't know what it is.
0: Th- you know what I thought immediately when you had to step off, Derek, was um, I'm trying to remember this creature's name, uh, the, the lizard. What was the lizard? Oh, oh you Squinty. Had?
2: Squinty. Squinty. the one-eyed lizard, squinty the one-eyed squinty. lizard named yeah. Squinty. Yeah, my wife one weekend decided decided she was going to get a, uh, a a lizard and went on Craigslist and found somebody who was giving it away for free because they were moving and didn't want to take it. And so we, my, my wife packed up the kids. They drove over to this person's apartment, picked up Squinty, the one eyed lizard, and uh, he's still <laughs> around, man. He's still
1: around. You got to, I miss him, uh, man. Yeah, I miss him. Uh, you have to accompany someone who's going to pick up a Craigslist lizard for fun. Yeah,
2: for sure. For sure. <laughs>
1: Two people. Yeah,
2: <laughs> at least.
1: This way you That's a two-person job.
0: Yeah. And you meet the other, you meet the seller at the police station. That would be yeah. kind of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're meeting not at Starbucks, we're meeting yeah. at the police
2: station. <laughs> no, uh, but to, to Pedro's point, my, my wife is the better lawyer in the house. She's the oh, sure. I, everything I know I learned from her. So she uh She's a litigator and has been for her entire career too. But I started litigating because I didn't know what else lawyers did. You know, like when I went to law school, I thought, lawyers, what do they do? They go to court, they argue cases, they, you know, Perry Mason uh, stuff with witnesses, you know, they pull out the smoking gun or, you know, the gotcha on the stand. <laughs> so That's what I thought people did. But then at the end, it turns out it's really all about putting keywords in for searching electronic discovery And then writing a bunch of (laughs) letters back and forth with somebody on the other side. I mean, that's true. I like, I got so burned out from it. I was that by the end, that's what caused me to sort of go in house. It was like, I don't see a future. I look at the next 30 years of my career, 25 years. And if this is it, like I got to do something else. And what I really liked were things where I could talk with a client, figure out what, What their business goal was. Like, what are you trying to do here, really? Not how can I win this case or how can I generate fees or you know, what's what do I think the case should be about? But what do you think the case is about from a business perspective? How can we accomplish those goals and get there? But then litigation, nobody's happy at the end. You know, I had a trial once where we won full defense verdict, case had been going on for five years, nasty, nasty stuff. We won. I fully expect it was the first trial I ever did fully expected at the end that the client was going to say let's go pop champagne bottles and go have a big steak dinner because I saw my corporate colleagues they'd have a deal closing they'd have all these big deal dinners you know and everybody's just blowing money on stuff my clients were like yeah I guess great you know thanks we won but I, I paid you you know hundreds of thousands of dollars over the last five years you know I lost we all lost nobody won this thing and uh so I was like, you know what? I got to I gotta get where the, I can I can be happiest doing what I'm doing and I can have the most impact. And I can do things where I see how business actually works, help multiple parts of the business. I'm not just there for the bad parts. I can be there for the good parts and just bring that sort of problem solving skills from litigation to going in-house. So yeah, then I worked with Mark, Mark Parton was already at Oracle. Mark Parton was my initial contact. He was working in the cloud group at the time and uh, pulled me in
1: Pedro was already
2: there when I started um, but Pedro was off doing data stuff and there, was, how we did you find
1: how did you find that transition did you go in and litigate or you didn't you just like so how did you find that transition going from, litigation to something completely new in a company where you're surrounded by a bunch of lawyers that that you know presumably many of them had had already cut their teeth on corporate work or business work and stuff like that
2: yeah i you know at oracle because it's so big it's highly process driven and highly regimented So, you know, and that was actually, you know, that's one of the frustrations why I wanted to go do something else. Oracle, great grounding for what I wanted to do. It was a great, it was a great first in-house job for me and gave me a ton of foundational stuff that I I still use now. But, you know, the lawyers are, their focus is very limited, right? They, They are tasked with only reviewing certain things and anything other than that, it's somebody else's job, right? You push it out and there's a lot of, you know it's very narrow siloing so in that regard it was really good for me because i could come in and i didn't have to worry about taking ownership of a deal and trying to captain the whole thing from beginning to end i was really just plugging in on little things here and there so it, it was a nice way to sort of ramp up and figure out what tolerances were on the on the various issues and you know frankly it wasn't it wasn't that hard because the issues when you came down were pretty narrow and not that complicated you, you could figure it out pretty quickly Um, what to do whatever you got to the data stuff though now that is a different story you know there's the the figuring out that world is a whole different learning curve and so I was glad to have sort of the baseline here's how we contract here's what lawyers do here you know here's what our risk tolerances are overlay to then take that to the data world
1: I think that's a really good path and Pedro and I have similar stories to yours in this respect. You start out in a law firm. I wasn't a litigator, but uh, was was doing corporate work, but not the same work I was doing when I went in-house. And when you I went in-house to TD Ameritrade, I was able to like learn a ton in five years there. Bigger company, bigger legal team. Everyone had their silo. You had expert friends to go to to ask questions as a junior person that's so valuable you learn everything you need to know and then when you you really start to in my case and it sounds like it was it was yours and I know it's Pedro's like you you go in you're learning the your silo but then you also learn the value of learning and understanding the business and the technology that takes a little while and then it freed me up to go in when I went in as the only lawyer at my at my first gig being the only lawyer i understood how deep i needed to go on the tech in order to yeah. be an effective lawyer you've got to go really deep on what your technology does and double that if you're the only one in there that's trying to that's trying to figure stuff out and make those decisions so um, my story is similar to yours
2: for sure. yeah at my at my current job i they have been in business for 17 or 18 19 years now i'm lawyer legal employee number 1 and i've been there 18 months so they had no in-house legal function before at all. So that you know it was a really deep dive. But you know, we had experience from that with with our, the data cloud, right? We saw whenever Oracle was doing all that roll-up of and pretty aggressive in the MA markets, they were buying, you know, they bought BlueKai, then Data Logics, then Moat, then Crosswise, then you know GrapeShop, all in you know a two or three year period. So you got to you had to learn new technologies pretty quickly. You had to learn how they were contracting pretty quickly, what, how their service offering differed from somebody else, how it was complementary to stuff we were already doing. You know, so. It's with, yeah, it's hard. But being, this is why, you know, being a litigator, you know, you just have to be expert enough on stuff. And what I mean is, you know, I, I had a variety of cases I'd get in. So there was a time I have a case where we learned how uh, I, it was about frozen pizza. It was a trade secret case about frozen pizza. I learned, I could learn just enough about how frozen pizzas are made and the distribution network for it and the research and development that goes into it, enough to talk to a jury about it, talk to a judge about it when I needed to. There are experts who know much more about it than I do, of course, right? Just like in my, in, in what we do now, you know, there are people, you guys know much more about privacy than I do. You know more about data protection than I do. There are people that know a lot more about IP than I do. There are people that know a lot more about m than I do. But I know just enough about, about each of them that I can be effective as a general counsel to either know where I can plug in or know where I have holes where I can lean on my experts or my outside counsel to sort of bring it all together. And so, you know, that's, I think, you know, I. I was anxious to get out of being a litigator, but I think that background of you know just being expert enough to be able to take all of this specialized knowledge, sort of winnow it down to the usable knowledge, and then figure out how to deliver it to the right audience. You know, that's the main skill I felt like I learned there that translates to being a GC now.
0: Yeah. And you know, that's interesting. We talk about
2: like, assembling experts.
0: This I guess. Bert Kaminsky is the person we have to, and he's going to be on the show at some point, on the podcast at some point. But like, um, Bert assembled this group of people there that we were a part of yeah. that have gone on. I mean, I, I don't know how he did it, but like it was you, it was Parton, it was Denise Butler, it was um, James Turner, who's at Facebook. Uh, uh, Ellen, uh, I mean, just like the two Jeffs, Adam Huff, like this like super powerhouse group of brains um, uh, all around the same time, but then like a year, we all got hired, if I remember correct, a year or two. Yeah, and like I've never been around such a smart group of people all at once. I don't know what your experience
2: was there, but like that—that's how I still feel about it. I Totally agree, and don't forget Colin Williams. Colin was one of our colleagues. Oh my God, Colin—he was the first to leave. Yeah, Colin. yeah. yeah. Colin, Colin went out, and he went to became the GC at Reverb. Just had a great exit yep. to with Etsy, and Colin, you know, Colin was here in Chicago, and he uh founded this he he got there and he was sort of alone right he's a he's a tech general counsel hasn't done it before doesn't know what to do so he founded this networking group here called chicago tech gcs then when i made my move to centro he plugged me into that and it's an amazing group great resources we can all lean on each other we network we socialize you know we're an expert resource during COVID, we've been getting together and it's like you know whatever the topic du jour is for us so You know, like, when are people sending people back to the office? How are you doing it? We have an immediate sounding board because that's one of the struggles to me of being an in-house lawyer alone is at at a law firm or at Oracle, whenever we had that great team, you're right, I mean, it was an amazing team. I don't know how Bert did it. But you can just go down the hall or ping somebody or say, hey, let's pressure test this idea. You know, I've got this thing. I've got this problem. This is how I'm viewing it. This is what I think the answer is tell me why I'm wrong or you know, help me out. I need a second set of eyes. I'm on my own right now. I don't have that second set of eyes. So I have to count on these, you know, these networks uh, like this group or occasionally my outside counsel. But when I do that, you know, I get a bill for it. So I'd rather use these free resources I have that are amazing. And, uh, you know, kudos to Colin for putting that together. So yeah, th- that group was, you know, it was like lightning in a bottle at that time. And it, I think it helped with my learning curve too, You know, having all these people who are super talented there who have gone on to keep building out their careers to do these amazing things, um, teaching me, right? Just as a resource right down the hall.
1: Such an incredibly powerfully valid point that you're making there about peer networks and groups. And we have this exact thing that we've developed, uh, Pedro and I are in this group of people Um, Started with the NAI, Network Advertising Initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, People that were going to the events in that board. A couple of us then joined the board of that. that, And it was there, we met this circle of people that were all just able to plug in so deeply. And then we sort of like curated a group of those people uh, to bounce the most complicated ideas off of. And then ultimately you might still need your outside counsel because- the value of your outside counsel is they see tons of clients and so but at least you're narrowing your issues there you know i know this i know this and then i've narrowed it down and then i'm paying for for my time with my outside counsel but it's pedro you you'll add to this i'm sure it's incredibly valuable to have that group of people to bounce things off of Um, yeah like I, i don't i
0: it's my number one go outside of like my Oracle alumni group because Derek and I talk in the background about stuff all the time. When I was making a job change, I talked to him. When he was making his changes, we chatted. And, you know, I talked to Denise Butler this morning. Like, and you know, we all kind of stay in contact. We have a tech group of Oracle alumni. That we all talk. Um, it is my first place, Andy. To your point, like you start with a big question, and you narrow that question down as you listen to your friends um, who are just as smart or many times way more knowledgeable than you on whatever you're asking. And then you narrow it to something short to the point and concise, and then you pay for advice, Uh, you know, and now, you know, your, your bill is, you know, X instead of Y or whatever.
1: There's also little little things I'll add, and then we'll get right back to one thing I want to ask Derek, but there's also little things like when you need to, and this is a point we don't talk about very much on this show, because it's not really data protection related, but like, when you need to understand market salary, if you're a negotiator, <laughs> you understand like something serious about you and about what I should do tactically with my career. Like, what is this What is this gonna do for me? There's no better group than people. Like my, my wife, like I can talk about plenty of these things with my wife, but like, you know, that's one set of years, right? You need like other sets of years that are also doing what you're doing and get it on a day-to-day basis, it's invaluable for personal stuff too, that's related. Yeah,
2: that's, you know, like to that point, we, um, because my wife works at a big firm, they have a, a great sort of, uh, I, I guess to call called career, career center, but it's really, you know, they have a lot of people that leave there, right? It's a big firm that churns out a lot, a lot of associates leave, but they want those people when they go, they know that they might go in-house someday or they know they might need a referral. So they create a great, exit plate, you know, an exit ramp for them so that they feel good and want to refer things back and, and think fondly of the firm. And so as part of that, they have these great resources on salary information. And like, I just shared that with Pedro in the last month or so about, I have like four or five different resources that they plug me into that are, it's salary related. And so you get a pretty good sense from those, but to your point, you know, you can check with people to say, does this seem like market, you know, and, and not all of it, because each of the companies are going to be different, different stages of growth, you know, different your different size of legal department, whatever it is, there'll be some nuances to it. But at least it gives you a range where you can start thinking like, that's about where I feel like I should be, okay. and then start margin, you know, negotiate around the margins.
1: I want to revisit one thing you said about litigators as GCs because I think that's a really interesting topic. When I left, uh, I was at a lot, TD Ameritrade and I was eventually that, that, that general counsel was retiring. And I remember talking to somebody like, well, who do you think's going to, you know, step into that role? And there were a couple of candidates and one of them was one of the like lead litigators there. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Like that I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about that right away, but then the person walked me through why. And it was, it was like a light bulb went off. Like, oh, of course that person is in consideration for this because they're, Attached to, you know, major litigation, they're understanding, as you said, they're going like down to a certain level across many different parts of the business litigation impacts like you know ton, tons of different sectors of the business, So Yeah, that am I on point with thinking about that, like that that felt that was what was one of the things that was helpful to you in transitioning to the lead lawyer role.
2: Yeah, and I think, too, is also you get to see where risk actually lives. And, you know, we spent a lot of time and we did this at Oracle, you know, whenever we're negotiating contracts, every commercial contract comes back and somebody, the other side wants to talk about warranty, indemnity, and limitation of liability. We spend a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and ink talking about those things. But, you know, I never really got a sense was, were people actually litigating those? You know, whenever we got out. And so as a litigator, you do get a sense of, if you were in deep in the business, like your, your example of TD Ameritrade that person would see where in our commercial contracts are we seeing a lot of disputes? What, what's the actual risk for us here? Not what we think the risk is and not what we spend a lot of time negotiating because that's what commercial lawyers think you should do. But where is the actual risk to us in the business and how do we mitigate and manage that risk most effectively?
1: And they were talking about those issues with the board of directors. Yeah. So it was also And the management team of the entire company. So like litigation, if it's big enough, you know, is... Has the eye of everybody that's critical to running even a, a huge company, so uh, yeah, not interesting.
2: Yeah, I think that if you're, you know, if you're litigating, if you come from a litigation background outside of in-house and then you come in and do litigation, if if you were young, my suggestion would be they should rotate through some different departments. They should see some M and A. They should see some commercial work, just to get a sense for what those groups are doing. Because if you are just litigation the whole way through, you're right, you might get a good sense of the business going through, but you're not gonna be, I, I, don't, I just don't think you're gonna understand enough what those other groups are doing to be able to manage them meaningfully or really get an understanding of you know what that day-to-day work looks like. You could, of course, do it without it, but it certainly would be helpful. Yeah.
0: You still riding that little scooter, man? The, the low, I don't go
2: anywhere. I don't go anywhere. This is it, like you're looking at my setup. So I've been riding. Was it a Vespa book. or
0: some shit? What, what, what? Was it a Vespa?
2: Try... Yeah, oh, Vespa. You got it, Vespa. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, no <laughs> mileage. No mileage. I just picture track. you
0: going in your little Vespa to your big GC
2: job and it's like <laughs> a nice,
0: it's a nice visual.
2: <laughs> well, man, it's a it's a tech company. I'm like I'm one of the five oldest people there. So that's uh, <laughs> you know, if I if I could, if I can pass along any other advice for for old people working in the and I say, you know, old people like me, at a tech company, it's this, you know, uh, young people like emojis and exclamation points. And so, when you're communicating <laughs> with people, you know, like I, I never once at a law firm used an exclamation point in an email, and certainly not an emoji. And now, I would say, you know, about eighty percent of my emails or IMs have one or both of those in. That's just like that's how people communicate. <laughs> Like, I'll tell you, my favorite, my favorite, like millennialism
0: to use an email uh, is like to add LOL to any bad news or any mean thing. Like, Jesus Todd, that was really dumb. LOL, like you know, like
2: it kind of yeah, softens blow. You
0: know, like yeah. hey, you're late, John. LOL, you know, it's like you're scolding, but
2: like you're being nice about it. <laughs> yeah, so you know, I've heard people say that if you don't use those sort of those millennial signals that people think that you're upset or something. Like if I just write back, thanks period, <laughs> it's like, thanks. But if I write back, thanks exclamation point, it's like thanks, you know? So they, they <laughs> convey enthusiastic, man. Yeah, so a lot of enthusiasm among millennials. Really true. This is, this is deep tech. This is deep
1: yeah. tech <laughs> advice. <laughs> like, let's, like, let's talk tech let's 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 for one minute because we picked, we picked this incredible song, Look Away, which by the way, we were emailing before, is seared into my brain for weeks now. It is so that song, Look Away, sticks with you. And I was thinking about it because a friend of mine in law school used to get drunk and sing it at a karaoke bar every time. We would always end up at the same karaoke bar.
0: A friend of his,
1: <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, it was I you, man. I participated, but this wasn't my song. I had other songs but this was his song. And, and uh, recently he had like a video of it and sent it to me and reminded me of it. And it's like perfect for ad tech because there's like, people love it. There's revenue everywhere. There's a bunch of businesses doing it. But there's also this aspect of like, look away, look away, ad tech's doing some, some they're creating device collapse. And like, what are, they, and what are they doing? And what's in their privacy policy about it? And, um, and so ad tech perseveres. Through a, through a ton of stuff. And so I was curious to know, like, you know, if you jumped in, you know, less than two years ago, number one, the tech's hard to learn, but you probably had a foundation for it, you know, coming from Oracle. But like, what was that like? And what's it like to kind of jump into the demand side of that business where, and it's really a business where there is some of this sort of look away or like, um, you know, issues to, to fight through with that tech? Yeah, uh,
2: you know, I to me, the, the saving grace is still, that the US operates on a, a notice opt-out system, right? Where well, we're just giving notice of what we're doing and, and the most for the most part, and then just allowing people to opt out. If we had to get consent, like if we had to do a, an EU GDPR model, you know, that would be nightmarish. And so some of it you can a lot of it you can just cover over with here's what we're doing, it's in our privacy policy you know, we now have better consent management on the front end because of CCPA, where everybody knows a consent management platform or some tool to, to sort of manage that. And, but that to me, you know, that's the saving grace that I still have that as a fallback where I can just get in, talk to people, what are we doing? Let me make sure it's in the privacy policy. What do you want to do with this when we're doing it? Make sure it's in the privacy policy. And then, give people a meaningful, to the extent you can really, an opportunity to opt out. We have, you know, what was good for us is we have good tech people who were interested in this for for me. So there's a guy who is on our our DSP ops team who is really privacy focused. And so he is a great sounding board for me and he's a great ally because when I wanna talk about privacy, I've got somebody on the product team who's already clued into the issues and is ready to jump and he, you know he has sometimes his approach is even more aggressive than than is required and i'm happy to talk to him about why we might want to do certain things but i just like having that ally and somebody who's on the inside and that to me has been a big help with having a privacy foundation already there um, even though they didn't have a lawyer doing it but a privacy foundation there that i could just come in and append to rather than start from ground zero and try to build something out so there was not resistance to change or suggestion they were already you know there with it and doing what sort of the, in, the industry basics are right now and i can just do some fine tuning easier yeah
1: what's the future, uh, the future.
2: Yeah. Oh, what, what's the yeah. ad tech ad- ad- future <laughs> like oh, oh, everybody tell me uh you know here's what i come back to there to me is this illusion of roi return on investment i hate i hate acronyms and i know you guys know mm-hmm. what i mean but it's the illusion of it so now, there's this great article um, that that I read and it's a, it's a story from um, when Google was first starting up where Eric Schmidt and uh, one of the one of the two Google guys I can't remember which one were in a room with um, Mel Carmaan from he was the CEO of Viacom at the time and they were talking about ad buying and they said uh, you know, they said do the google guy said look we can show you how much uh, how effective this is right we can show your return on investment for every dollar you spend this is how much uh, revenue you're going to drive out of it because this is how much we convert the ads and this is how effective it is and this guy Carmazan, basically says don't mess with this guys like the whole magic for us in the media business is it's a black hole nobody knows how you know if their ads are effective or not because you used to just throw an ad in the wall street journal or you used to spend Three million dollars for a Super Bowl ad. Who knows if it works, right? I mean, truly, you don't know if that if that drove any real conversions. So marketers have become addicted to this idea that targeted advertising yields a return on investment, and I, I'm not sure if the if you can really definitively say it, but they believe it, and so that's the most important thing because when we have the cookie apocalypse coming and we have you know, other, the Apple where they're, you know, going to require consent for use of mobile IDs, all of that stuff. What's really scaring marketers is that they don't, how is my money going to show a return on investment? Because I depend on those things now and it gives me comfort because I think I'm getting a return on investment. So, you know, I come back to how do we, you know, how do we bridge that illusion? It's either come up with some solution, you know, people are talking about a unified ID and there's, you know, all these, you know, I, using just IP addresses or some other stuff and hashed emails, and you got a bunch of contextual advertising. Everybody wants to use this as a solution. Just use first-party data. You know, all these things are sort of floating around there, but and that those are sort of band-aids because the the real problem is this idea that all of that stuff was showing me success, and so marketers have to either come up with a way to sort of reframe the issue for themselves that this isn't you know. How do I show return on investment? How do I show my dollars are working? I'm no longer just dumping money into ads that I don't know who sees them. Um, and how do we bridge it? It's different for, you know, the Facebooks of the world where you have registration based advertising, you can show these are the people I'm reaching. But for, you know, the tailored advertising cookie based world, you know, interest based advertising. That ROI proposition is really what's at the, at the heart of it to me. And, you know, I, there's, of course, there's no answer yet. Nobody has a good answer, but some genius is going to come up with some way to get to the marketers and show them the ROI proposition and why what, what, what the new solution is that's on offer is better than or at least equal to what they were doing before with cookies and mobile IDs.
1: It's difficult because people are seeing ads on mobile so frequently and not converting on mobile. Yeah. That, that bridge of, of that, even with kind of device connected graphs and things like that, it is challenging. And I think, you know, it's not good enough for the ROI to simply be that a company is doing ad tech at scale for brand awareness, when the mm-hmm. truth is a lot of it is brand awareness. And, sure. and if, they, if they came to Jesus on that, and we're we're doing a certain amount of open web programmatic for that purpose without necessarily having to tie it to clicks or, you know, or, or different metrics. Then then I maybe the world will change in that direction. But I think I think you're correct. People they're just going to keep trying to solve for that until so the, the the technologists are so smart that I think they'll keep iterating on it and they'll keep trying to solve for it. And we've talked about this a couple times, like whether the solution is a unified ID or a hashed email or a or, or a thingamajigawatt, like it's gonna be, be, be the same story. There's always a buyer for open web programmatic. There's always a buyer for deal ID based advertising. There's a buyer for contextual advertising. The market's so big uh, that it's not gonna go away. It'll just change and more money may be spent in a walled garden, um, which is good news for a Google and a Facebook or somebody maybe. But there's still a lot of money spent in other places, so it's not like it's just one. Marketers are always going to want a mix of channels because they're not going to want to be dumped into, like, I only see you on Instagram. You know, they're going that brand is going to need to be seen elsewhere.
2: Yeah, and marketers don't want to lose their budget, right? They're not going to say, "Well, you know, you gave me uh, fifty million dollars last year to advertise, but you know that stuff I was doing with programmatic, I don't know if it works or not. So uh, that was ten million dollars in my budget. You can just take that." You know, like they they want it, and they're going to keep it, and they're going to find some other channel to put it into. It's a matter of telling them which ones work and which ones don't, and showing what the value problem is for it.
1: Last question is problem solved? Is Chicago, <laughs> Last is Chicago pizza pizza? Careful.
2: Well, when you when you say Chicago pizza, you're talking about one of the sub. Groups of Chicago pizza. I've talked about yes. deep
1: dish. My, my, actually, my favorite pizza place in Chicago is Peace, Peace Pizza, which is not deep dish. It's
2: New, new Haven style. Yes. yes, and so you know, there's all these subgenres. So you've got deep dish, that's most famous. You've got what I call uh, birthday party tavern pizza. So every kid's birthday party that I went to for you know ten years had the same pizza. It's wafer thin. The, the crust is almost like a cracker. It's cut into little square pieces, not, not pie slices. Uh, so you've got that, that that's Checkered, uh, checkered you know,
1: tablecloth, red lamp, right?
2: For sure, for <laughs> sure. You've got some pan pizza places. You've got hand-tossed New York style. So that's its own, you know, that's its own, it's a- it's a, a deep that's, dish. That's so focus, oh,
1: let's focus for a moment on the deep dish.
2: Deep dish, deep dish. The essential components of a pizza, crust, sauce, cheese, they're all there. So it's definitely a pizza. Close to a lasagna, but definitely a pizza.
1: Very l- legal argument.
0: It's a,
2: it,
1: but, is
0: a, so that may, but under that definition, I feel like a sandwich is a pizza. <laughs> I mean, well, I, know, I like, guess it's,
2: it's, it's a like hot dog a sandwich. Is a hot dog a sandwich, you know? There you go. This is, this is a deep
0: question. This not, now we're getting really <laughs>
2: philosophical. <laughs>
0: I'm gonna to turn to St. Thomas Aquinas tonight for this question.
1: <laughs> why don't you ask it? On, why don't you ask it on Facebook, my friend? You know,
0: uh, I may do so, but I'm afraid of some of the responses I'll get. But we'll see.
1: Derek, <laughs> we'll uh, see. this is awesome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for being. Thanks for getting the good Zoom room for this. Say hi to Squinty, the one-eyed lizard. Yeah. Oh, shout out to Squinty. Yeah,
2: shout out, shout out, shout out <laughs> Lily the Pub, too. Don't forget about her. That's right. <laughs> Thanks, bro. All right. All Thank right. you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye, man.